You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. We are continuing our look at the book of Ruth. And if you would, today we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 3. So if you'd take your Bibles and turn there with me, we're actually going to look at the whole chapter this morning. So Ruth chapter 3, starting with verse 1, we're going to go all the way down to the end of the chapter. And we're going to be asking the question, is your heart at rest in Jesus. Is your heart at rest in Jesus? So just be thinking about that as we look at this portion of Scripture together this morning. I'm going to start with verse 1 here of Ruth chapter 3, and this is what it says. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer." And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning... If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the, thre- to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, "'How did you fare, my daughter?' And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, "'These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, "'You must not not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law.' She replied, "'Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today.'" Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of your word, and we thank you, Lord, for the fact that 
This is a story that you're allowing us to gradually watch as it unfolds, as we work our way through the chapters of this book. We're seeing the different things that you've done in the lives of people like Naomi and Ruth and now Boaz, and you're orchestrating things that ultimately demonstrate your heart and illustrate your redemptive plan for humanity that you accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're grateful that we have the privilege to be able to look at these things. And even as we look at this passage today, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand the nature of what it means to have rest in your Son, Jesus Christ, that our hearts would find rest in him. Lord, we pray that that would be something that we would understand a little bit better in in more totality as we look at this portion of Scripture today and, and apply its concepts to the overall teaching of your word. So we thank you, Lord, for this time, and we're grateful for the privilege to be able to spend a little time together looking at your word, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So from the time I was young till now, it hasn't really changed, I've had some very uncommon sleeping patterns. And when I say that, my family would probably laugh at me saying that because they would say they're extremely uncommon. Now, I've done some reading on the subject to see if my experience is similar to others or if there's actually something wrong with me. Uh, And don't answer that out loud, those of you that have known me for a while, because some of you are probably like, something, right? Just text me later. I know. Um, But I typically don't get as much sleep as is recommended. And uh, most experts on the subject insist that we should have a solid eight hours of sleep every night. And some of you are really good at that. Some of you get a good solid eight hours of sleep every night. Maybe some of you get even more than that. Maybe some of you get less. I don't know. I admire those who succeed at doing that, but it's not a common duration of rest for me. Uh, And in fact, last night I got a a call from my son, and uh, it was at 1240. Now, he was still on campus, and uh, I got a call at 1240, and he said, Dad, real quick... um, I just have a question for you. It's a music trivia question. So I answered the question. He's like, all right, see you later. And, uh, and when he got home, he, he said, yeah, my friends were, were telling me, um, you know, like, do you think you should call your dad this late? And, he, and his comment to them was, oh, no, it's okay. He doesn't sleep. <laughs> he doesn't sleep. It'll be fine. Most people in my home tend to go to bed at 1030. So how many people here go to bed right around 1030 at night, roughly? How many are earlier than 1030? All right, how many are later than 10.30? How many are terrible sleepers like me? Okay, so I'm not alone, right? Um, But most people in my house, right around 10.30, but I'll I'll tell you something strange that happens to me. Right around that time, I I get like a boost of energy. Get a boost of energy. And many of the things that I've written or recorded or like websites I've developed, anything like that, even the church website, like I, it ends up being created between the hours of 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. And that is not an uncommon time period. And I jokingly call those my entrepreneurial hours. That's what I call that uh, in our household. Those are my entrepreneurial hours. And then once I finish, then I go to sleep. And then I wake up and, and kind of start the process all over again. Most nights, I aim to get five hours of sleep if I can, it's usually four, and that's just kind of how it is. And then sometimes, every now and then, I'll have a night where I just kind of crash and where I just need to go to bed early, and it's almost like my body's just trying to catch up on it. If I figure out how to change this about myself, 
I will certainly try, but since this is a pattern that I've been following for the majority of my life, I don't really expect it to change anytime soon. In, in fact, at this point, I've kind of given up on it. Uh, I was reading in a book that, that had some advice, like, if you have trouble sleeping at night, do this. And one of the pieces of advice that it gave was, if you have trouble sleeping at night, don't fight it. Just accept that you're having trouble sleeping at night. Read a book. And I'm like, so that's what I do half the time. I just read. Um, but still, I will acknowledge that getting rest is a very important thing. And I know that some of you that are very attuned to medical things right now are mortified that I'm, I'm sharing you know, that, that sort of uh, time span in my sleeping patterns. And I'll say this too. When we're discussing rest, when we're typically discussing that subject, most of the time, we're usually speaking about physical rest. So when we're talking about rest, that's usually what we mean. We're usually talking about getting physical rest. We're usually talking about taking a break or going to sleep. That's usually what we mean by that term. But there's another form of rest, in in fact, a deeper form of rest, that we should value as well. Physical rest has value, but there's a deeper form of rest that I want us to think about this morning, even as we kind of approach that subject, and it comes up in the Scripture that we're looking at today. Oftentimes, when Scripture is speaking of rest, and I'll tell you, there are portions of Scripture that for a long time I really wrestled with related to rest because I didn't feel like I understood them. It seems to be a subject that I have to dig in deeper to really grasp or to really wrestle with because it's something that I don't think that I naturally find myself bent to understand. But oftentimes, when Scripture speaks of the, of the concept of rest, it's talking about the peace that comes from knowing that our greatest needs are being met. It speaks of peace that passes understanding. When you look at Philippians chapter 4, it talks about this this peace that passes all understanding. When we entrust our lives, when we entrust ourselves over to the compassionate care of Jesus. It it references, like when Scripture's talking about rest, it's referencing a confidence about our future, knowing that our lives and our eternities are being securely held in the hands of of our Creator. That's the deeper form of rest that Scripture is pointing us toward and trying to help us understand. And so in the portion of Scripture that we just looked at, rest is brought up in several different ways, and it's illustrated in several different ways. You see people physically resting, but you also see deeper level concepts related to rest being discussed here. And when Naomi looked at her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and she has this discussion with her early in this chapter, she says she wanted Ruth to experience rest. And the kind of rest that Naomi is speaking of on behalf of Ruth is rest on the deeper level. It's deeper level rest. It's not just physical rest. That's not really what she was getting at. She's talking about a deeper level rest, a satisfaction or a sense of peace or a sense of the fact that that life is being cared for and that she's fine. Now, if you keep in mind what we've seen in the chapters leading up to this, together these women had endured the deaths of their husbands They had also endured the strain of seeking to establish a new life in a new location without their husband's help. They had also experienced some very weary and very sorrow-filled days, and you can see that leading up to this portion of Scripture. Their hearts had been heavy, their bodies had been exhausted because they had been traveling from Moab to Bethlehem, a long journey. And a lot of times people think back in the day, you know, people would probably ride on animals when they would do these trips, and that's not the case at all. Typically, if you had stuff to carry, you'd put the stuff you're carrying on the animals, but then you would walk beside the animal. So typically, when you're doing that kind of traveling, you're doing it by foot, many, many, many miles over the course of multiple days. And so they were, 
they were weary on multiple levels. And when you look at some of Naomi's words earlier in this book, she often wrestled with the thought that God was withholding his favor from her and her household. And maybe you've struggled with that a time or two over the course of your life. That was certainly something Naomi was struggling with at this season of life, thinking maybe God was withholding his favor from her. Maybe God was withholding his favor from her household because she had dealt with hardship after hardship after hardship. And in the midst of all this hardship that she had been dealing with, rest felt elusive. It wasn't something that she felt like she could just have. It was something that felt elusive. And when she would look at Ruth, who's going along on this journey with her and had experienced many of these same things with her, she's looking at Ruth and she's saying, I want you to have rest. I want you to find rest. It's kind of interesting that she's at a spot here where she's not really thinking so much about herself in these actions and in these words. She's thinking about somebody else. She's looking at her daughter-in-law. Ruth had been married to Naomi's son. Naomi's son had passed away. Uh, Naomi's husband had also passed away. And she's just looking at Ruth. And she's like, you've been through so much. I just want you to have rest. I want you to experience rest. When I look at Naomi throughout the course of this book, when I see the things that she says, and when I see the actions that she chose to take, I'm impressed by her because she strikes me as an others-centered person even though she didn't seem to hold out much hope for her own circumstances changing in any sort of drastic way. She didn't seem to be uh, like highly convinced that her circumstances were going to drastically improve personally, but she remained emotionally invested in, in doing what she could to direct Ruth toward a better and more restful life. And so you have Naomi looking at Ruth. She's observing her character She's observing her loyalty, which is something that's been demonstrated all throughout this book. And she's, de- she's observing her faithfulness. And she just wants Ruth to experience better days. She wants her to experience a better life. And so she remains dedicated to offering Ruth wisdom and to offering Ruth direction to help facilitate this because she wants to see it happen. Now, for a little while, if you remember what took place in the previous chapter... The previous chapter tells us about what took place after Ruth and Naomi find themselves back in Bethlehem after being in Moab, and um, at the time they came back, it was the barley harvest. And so now for a little while, Ruth had been going to the field of a man named Boaz, and she'd been gleaning barley in that field. And if you remember what the scripture tells us about Boaz, Boaz was a godly man who actually was related to Naomi's family. And you you look at the ways in which he interacted with people and the ways he gave praise to God and the ways he treated Ruth. And the scripture tells us that he treated Ruth well as she gleaned in his field with his maidservants. Uh, Boaz made it clear that he knew of Ruth's character. He also knew of her reputation. And he wanted to do his best to bless her, not just for Ruth's sake, but also for the sake of Naomi, who was his relative. He wanted to bless Naomi through Ruth. And so he would attempt to bless both of them at the same time in many of his actions. And as Naomi witnesses all this taking place, she's seeing this take place, she's observing this, she's got a keen eye, she also sees an opportunity for Ruth to be taken care of for the rest of her life. Last week I was joking about the fact that some people, when they get the opportunity to matchmake, they pounce on that, right? 
And then I looked around this room and realized that many of you in this room do that, okay? And so that wasn't a chide. It's like, let's just acknowledge that. And I also was joking. Again, I, my, my wife is downstairs. She totally does that. And uh, I was with her when she heard last week's message. She wasn't in the sanctuary when it was shared, but she totally does that. And, um, and I get a kick out of it. And you know what? There's some people who are really, really good at that. And I kind of get the impression that Naomi was really good at that. If Naomi tried to fix you up with somebody, kind of the, she's like the, the e-harmony of her day, you know? <laughs> you, you don't have the internet, so you just go to enaomi.bethlehem. And uh, that's, how, that's how you find a spouse, right? And uh, Naomi sees an opportunity here for Ruth to be taken care of for the rest of her life, and so she starts putting plans together. Naomi starts putting plans together to attempt to encourage a marriage between Ruth and Boaz, even though Boaz was older, even though Boaz was at a different season of life. In fact, I don't know if you noticed as we were reading through chapter 3, what does he refer to Ruth as multiple times? Just in the polite term of, uh, he calls her daughter. Now, she's not his daughter, but he, it's basically somebody at a different season of life looking at somebody else. It's kind of like you know an older gentleman seeing somebody and being like, hello, son, how are we doing? How can we help you? It's not like your actual son. You know? And the same thing here with this. He looks at Ruth. They're at a different season of life. He's like, my daughter, you are kind. You've done some wonderful things. And you have Naomi here saying, I got to get these two married. I got to get these two married. That's going to provide rest for Ruth. That's going to be a good thing. This is going to work out. But he's at a very different season of life. He's at a, Boaz is at a very different stage. And yet Naomi looks at this and she says, no, this has to happen. And one of the things that I'm noticing as I prepare each week to share on this book, and you've probably been noticing this too, there is no way that these are ideas that just came to Naomi's mind without outside intervention. And the outside intervention that I'm speaking of is the Holy Spirit who is guiding and directing this entire story. And he's putting thoughts in Naomi's mind, and he's giving her words to say, and he's preparing Ruth's heart to be receptive to that truth, and he's also preparing Boaz so that he's noticing certain thing and things, and, that, and his heart is, uh, is prepared to do the right thing as well. And I have to say, there's a variety of lessons we can take in, from the, our study of this book, but one of the things I hope that, that all of us will take from this book is the blessing of just listening to the counsel of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to you. As he directs your heart, as he nudges you, as he points you in a direction, as he gives you things to think about and things to say, listen to what he tells you. He's not going to steer you wrong. He's not going to steer you in some way that's going to conflict with the Word of God. He's going to steer you in the right direction. And you can see the Holy Spirit steering these people, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, all of these circumstances. So Naomi, at this point, the scripture tells us, at this point, she knew that Boaz, who's been working hard in these fields, she knew that he's going to be winnowing his barley at the threshing floor in the evening. These were long days they were putting in in these fields and in these farms. Long days. And keep in mind, they had just experienced years of famine. So I don't think that as they were working in the fields and and experiencing a harvest that was just really plentiful and, and things were going well, I don't think that it was a burden to them because they remembered the years where they had nothing to do because nothing would grow. But now the barley's growing well. And so you have Boaz spending all day working in the fields, his men working in the fields. Now in the evening, what's he doing? Well, I've lost daylight, so now it's time for me to start winnowing my barley on the threshing floor. And so he starts doing that in the evening. 
Naomi knows that that's what Boaz is going to be doing. She also knew he was going to be eating and sleeping there after a hard day's work. It's just one of those things, you know, just sleeping at the, at, at the job. By the way, there was, a, there was a, a donut shop up by my grandmother's house years ago that got shut down by the health department. And I asked her, I was like, oh, that's terrible that that donut shop got shut down. I always like getting stuff from there. And she said, yeah, you know what was going on? And I, I said, no, I have no idea. And she said, they found out that the owner basically slept back there as well. Like he kind of lived where he made the donuts. And the health department was like, yeah, so you can't do that. And it got shut down. And I was like, oh, okay. And in our context, we'd be like, yeah, that's kind of awkward. We don't get donuts from that place now, right? Because the guy, you know, like brushes his teeth there and sleeps there and everything else. So we're like, maybe we don't do that. And then you look at what Boaz is doing and he's sleeping right where he works. <laughs> sleeping right where he works. And I'm not going to lie, there are times that I've fallen asleep at that desk, Okay. I bore myself that much sometimes. I have fallen asleep at that desk. It has happened. But you look at this here. She knows that Boaz is going to be winnowing that barley. She knows that he's going to be at that threshing floor. She knows that he's going to be eating and sleeping there after a hard day's work. And so with that in mind, Naomi gives Ruth some counsel. She says, listen, this is what I want you to do. And it's very strategic. Naomi is very strategic in what she's doing. Very intentional. She instructs Ruth. She says, all right, I want you to, first of all, I want you to wash up. So wash up. And then she said, I want you to anoint yourself. You know, basically like, like you're presenting yourself to people in your best state. So wash up, anoint yourself, and then I want you to find out where he falls asleep. And then when you find out where he falls asleep, I want you to go there. I want you to lay at his feet, and I want you to uncover his feet. And I want you to just stay there till he wakes up. Now to many people, this would seem like a strange plan, Right? Someone told you to do something like that. And by the way, who wants to be laying down? I don't know if you guys think about stuff like this, but it's not like the guy took a shower after, you know, working in the fields all day. And so I don't know. I don't imagine too many people would be like, wait, you want me to like at his feet? Like, how about like just near him? (laughs) It's like, no, at his feet. I want you to lay down at his feet. It's like, he's been working in the field for like a bunch of days. And I, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it, right? You know, I, many people, I think this would seem like a very strange plan, right? But you look at Ruth's response. She has great trust in Naomi. She has great trust in the counsel that she gives. And she follows her directions to the letter. In fact, look at what she replies. This is in verse 5 of chapter 3. She says, all that you say, I will do. All that you say, I will do. Now, has the Lord ever blessed you with a mentor? or someone who's been guiding you, or someone who's pointing you in the, in the direction that ultimately he wants you to go, and he's using someone that he places in your life to give you that counsel, to help show you how this is all going to work out. One of the ways that the Lord will speak to you and to me is through his people. Is that not true? I mean, how many times in your life has the Lord spoken to you through somebody that he's placed in your life? Someone who loves him, and he speaks to you through that person. Well, Naomi was that person to Ruth. And Ruth recognizes this, and she doesn't argue with this plan. This plan probably seems somewhat strange, but at the same time, she doesn't argue, she doesn't debate. She just looks at this, and it's like, you're asking me to do some very specific things, some of which feels a little strange, but you know what? All that you say, I will do. And again, I believe the Holy Spirit is guiding their words, guiding their minds, guiding their lives. But now think about what Naomi is instructing Ruth to do. Why do you suppose Naomi instructs Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet and wait there? When you look at that, when you see what the Scripture is describing here, I believe there's a variety of things that are being illustrated in this action. 
all of which would seem very countercultural to many people today. And by the way, I love when we come across things in Scripture that are countercultural because I think our, our culture needs a wake-up call in a variety of areas. And um, there's some very countercultural things taking place in this portion of Scripture. But in this action, I see a variety of things. One of the things that I think is being demonstrated to us is a demonstration of humility on Ruth's part. This is a way that she could actually, in a very visible way, demonstrate humility just in the way she interacts with Boaz in this moment. I also see something, and I think that this is one of the things that's being intentionally demonstrated here. I see a visible expression of her dependence on Boaz's care and provision. Because if you read the portion of the story that leads up to this, it's essentially Boaz who's providing for Naomi and Ruth and making it so that they're cared for and that they're well and that they're fed and they're being provided for. And so they're dependent on this. And so this is a way to say, essentially, I recognize this. I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me, essentially. I'm going to be somebody who can acknowledge the fact that I'm dependent on the kindness that's coming from you right now. And so this demonstrates this care and provision that she's recognizing and, uh, and honoring. And in her actions, you have Ruth demonstrating respect You have her demonstrating submission. You also have her demonstrating trust in Boaz through doing this. I think it demonstrates all of this. But imagine now being Boaz in this particular context. I don't know exactly how old he was in this moment, but he's a little bit older now. And imagine being him waking up at night and discovering that this beautiful woman is laying at your feet. That had to be a very strange thing for him. And at first, Boaz tries to make sense of what's going on, and he's trying to figure out what's happening, like what's actually going on. He wanted to know who this was. He wanted to know why she was there. He's scratching his head over all of this, and so Ruth just tells him. She says, look, it's me. It's Ruth. She tells him that it was her, and then she does something else. And I don't know if you caught this when I was reading it the first time, but what is she essentially doing in her words to Boaz? She's proposing marriage to him. Now, in your marriage, I don't know who proposed to who. All right? I proposed to Andrea, okay? And, uh, but then I'm looking at this and I'm like, man, that would have been way easier, right? Like, maybe, maybe she could have just said, like, hey, how about we get married and then I don't have to have my heart in my throat, right? And, uh, but here you have Ruth, Ruth is proposing to Boaz. She's proposing marriage to him. She proposes marriage. Now, I highly doubt that Boaz was expecting any of this when he fell asleep on the threshing floor that evening, but that's what he woke up to discover. It's like, what's going on? In the middle of the night, he wakes up. He's like, who's at my feet? What's going on? Hey, want to get married? What? <laughs> but upon discovering this, I, I, I do love how he responds. First, he, as it becomes clear what's going on here, right, he pronounces a blessing on her. He pronounces a blessing on her because he says she didn't chase younger men, even though she very much could have. It's like, you know, you could have chased younger men and you didn't do that. And he pronounces a blessing upon her, acknowledging her character yet again. And then he encourages her not to fear. And the reason he encourages her not to fear is because he's basically saying, look, I intend to follow the directions related to what's called leveret marriage that are described in Deuteronomy 25. Now, he doesn't say it exactly that way, but he says, I intend to go through the process of redeeming you, and he's referencing what what we talked about last week, 
that's found in Deuteronomy 25, where it talks about a close relative marrying the widow of another relative. He says, I intend to do this. I intend to follow through with this, uh, and we'll, we'll kind of see how the process goes. He tells her there's, there's a redeemer in the family line that's closer than me, but if he won't do it, I will. If he won't fulfill his obligations to you, I will fulfill those obligations to you. And then it, the Scripture tells us that in the morning before the sun set, or before the sun rose, I mean, he sent her back to Naomi with six measures of barley as a gift. And Ruth brought that barley back to Naomi along with the news of everything that Boaz had just said. And I love Naomi's response. She looks at Ruth, and even with this whole concept of rest in our mind, she tells her to do something. She says, notice this word, wait. She said, okay. And you could just see, I don't know if she did this while, while she was saying wait, but I think she might have. She's like, wait, my daughter. Wait, my daughter. Something like this. Wait, my... She wasn't that. She was calculating, though. Let's admit this, right? Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. She's like, I know, Boaz. We will know the answer to this before today is done. He will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Ruth was instructed to do what? Wait. Just wait. By the way, anyone enjoy waiting? Who enjoys waiting? Oh, nobody? Okay. Nobody enjoys waiting. I have to admit, uh, well, what was it? What that Tom Petty song say? Waiting is the hardest part, right? That great sage Tom Petty, some of you are like, Tom Petty. And some of you are like, who? Right? Waiting is the hardest part. I have to admit, waiting is one of the hardest things the Lord's ever asked me to do, and maybe you feel the same way. But it's true that good things come to those who wait, and when you look at what Scripture tells us, there are multiple places in Scripture where it demonstrates that the Lord simply just wants us to wait. Sometimes we think the Lord wants us to do this and do that and do this and do that, and then you look at what Scripture says, and sometimes the do that He wants us to do is to just relax for a minute and let things unfold. Just wait and trust Him. Just wait. Let me show you a few scriptures that reference this. In Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14, it says this. The psalmist says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So you see it emphasized twice. Wait for the Lord. Lamentations 3.25, you have Jeremiah saying it this way. He says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him. Isn't that interesting to think? The Lord's good to those who wait for him. And then in James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, he says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What's James saying? Jesus is returning sooner than you think. In the meantime, while you're trying to rush things, stop doing that. Wait. I think you and I will often find ourselves in a spot where we're called to wait upon the Lord to act on our behalf. I think that's one of the things that the Lord invites us to do and He gives us opportunity to do, but waiting can be a very challenging task. 
yet it's a blessing at the same time. It's something that the Lord uses to stretch our faith. And I'm sure you could give examples of times where your faith was stretched through a waiting period. Something that the Lord uses to develop our trust in Him. Waiting can develop our trust in Him. I think it's also something the Lord uses to remind us of our genuine hope. He's the one we have genuine hope in. He's the one we're trusting. We have hope in Jesus Christ, and we will not be disappointed, as the Scriptures have assured us. And we're ultimately waiting for Him to return. We're ultimately waiting for Him to restore all things. And we are closer to that day than we've ever been, but yet we wait. And in the unfolding of time, in God's perfect timing, it's all going to come to pass. And here Ruth was told to wait for Boaz to fulfill his promise. But there was no doubt in Naomi's mind that he would do so. No doubt that he would do so. And I want to say just in relation to you and me, as we wait for Christ to fulfill his promises, our confidence in Christ should mirror the kind of confidence that Naomi had in the assurances that Boaz was giving Ruth. It should look like that. Ruth was about to find the rest that she sought. Ruth was, able to, was going to find that rest that, that, they, that Naomi wanted for her. And the compassionate heart of God was going to facilitate her redemption and restoration through his servant Boaz. Now, when you look at what Scripture tells us, when you look at the ultimate picture that's unfolding all throughout the Scriptures, Jesus Christ has promised us ultimate rest. Jesus Christ has promised us ultimate redemption. Jesus has, has promised us ultimate restoration. That's something that He has assured us is secure in Him. But while we wait for His promises to be fulfilled, what happens? At times, we can grow impatient. And, you know, if I could change something about myself, that's something I would certainly change. I would like to be more patient. But you know how you learn patience? Through hard experiences, through trials that force you to wait. And so this is something I see the Lord at times facilitating in my life, and maybe you experience the same thing. And sometimes the Lord will remind us, or He will bless us with reminders, I should say, of our need for patience. And a friend of mine's getting one of those reminders right now. I have a friend, his name's Danny. I was actually speaking to him on Thursday via Zoom. And he is a missionary in the country of Burundi in East Africa. Anyone ever been to Burundi? Nobody? All right, I'm looking around. I don't think anyone. All right. Well, Danny's there, and he's been there for uh, a little over a month now. He just, started there, he just started serving there several weeks ago, and he said to me the other day, he said, I have to tell you, I'm finding the pace of living here challenging. I love it, and I find it challenging. And he admitted that he has the type of personality that likes to take action quickly. He likes to take action quickly. But now he's serving in a context where the pace of life is much more relaxed, extremely relaxed. And as he attempts to serve in this new community, he says this has been one of his biggest struggles because he's an action taker who seeks fast results, but the Lord is helping Danny to adjust. He's showing him, all right, you can relax. You can join the pace of life of the, of the people that you're now living among and serving. And so the Lord right now is teaching Danny to rest. He's teaching Danny to wait. It's a valuable lesson, but it's a difficult lesson to learn. And if you and me, if we want to experience the peace of Christ as our Lord intends us to, and I hope you'll hear me on this, we need to learn to rest in Him. We need to learn the value of waiting as well. 
And I think in a very real way, we're in the same exact spot that Ruth found herself in in regard to her relationship with Boaz. And what, what you see in Ruth's life here, you have Ruth demonstrating humility. You have Ruth demonstrating dependence. She also demonstrates respect. She also demonstrates submission. And she also demonstrates trust toward Boaz. And in our rushing and in our striving, I wonder if our struggle to wait on the Lord is an admission on our part that we find it difficult to respond to Him with those same five traits. That we struggle to respond to the Lord with humility, that we struggle to respond to the Lord with a sense of dependence, that we struggle at times to respect Him or submit to Him or trust Him when circumstances seem new or unfamiliar. And by the way, that's part of the process of growing in our faith. We have to wrestle through those things. So I wonder, just a few questions I want to throw out, and I hope you'll think through these things with me. But I wonder, are we struggling to find rest in Jesus because we're trying to elevate our timetable over His? And when we do that, are we demonstrating humility or are we demonstrating pride? I think when I try and elevate my timetable over the timetable of God, I'm demonstrating pride. But yet the Lord wants me to demonstrate humility, and that's something that I think I need to wrestle with, and I, I suspect I'm not the only one. I wonder this, are we struggling to find rest in Jesus because we'd rather depend on ourselves than give our hearts full permission to depend on Him? I think sometimes we wrestle with that. You know, we think, you know, I can come through for myself, or I can do what I need to do. And yet, Scripture invites us to be dependent on Him in a healthy way. I wonder this, are we struggling to find rest in Jesus because we care more about getting respect for ourselves than we care about showing respect toward Him? I think many people are living their lives right now attempting to gain some level of notoriety or some level of respect for themselves in whatever field they tend to operate in, and yet Christ has called us to give Him glory. Christ has called us to give Him respect. How about this? Are we struggling to find rest in Jesus because there are areas of our lives that we would rather not submit to His Lordship? And in that struggle, can we see that our desire for control is starting to control us while failing to actually give us the peace that we so desire, because that peace can only be found through Jesus Christ. And so if I try to go through my life controlling all the things that I really can't control, I'm not going to find peace. I think you only find peace when you get to a spot where you realize and you just openly admit, you know what, I can't control the things that I want to control. But I know who can, and I know who does, and I know what he decides is good. So if I want to have peace in Christ, I have, to, I have to trust Him to control the things I have no control over. And I probably also need to just admit that I have no control over those things. Because sometimes it takes my mind, and probably your minds too, a little while to get there, where we're willing to actually admit that. How about this? Are we struggling to find rest in Jesus because we aren't fully convinced He can be trusted to do what He promised to do? Do we trust ourselves more than Him? Do we trust our good intentions more than we trust His promises. I want us to wrestle with those things because look at what Jesus actually said during the course of His earthly ministry. He made a few comments that I think are worth noting. In John 14, 27, Jesus said this. He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's talking about that ultimate rest, that ultimate peace that he supplies. He's saying, I give this to you. He said, I'll give this to you. And it's not like what the world gives. The world gives you conditional things. The world gives you things that can be taken away. This world gives you things that are going to be lost anyway. And he's saying, I'm giving you peace. I will give you peace, and it's peace that will stay with you. Because it's peace that's anchored in who he is. A couple chapters later in John 16, Jesus said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Can I tell you something that's super helpful when you're going through things that test your faith and stress you out? You could look at those things and keep that verse in mind and simply say, you know what? I'm in the midst of this, but Christ has already overcome it. Christ has already overcome this. It does change your perspective. It does improve your attitude in the midst of things that you go through that are less than pleasant. If we could look at those things and simply say, you know what, take heart. I've overcome the world. That's what Christ told me. All right, he's already overcome this. And his victory that he secured is something he's willing to share with me. I'll tell you what, as we finish up this morning, Jesus is worthy of our trust, and in him we will find rest for our souls. If right now you're struggling to find that rest, if, it, if, if right now you're going through things that you're looking at and you're saying, this is probably one of the greatest trials I've ever gone through, and the Lord's asking me to wait for resolution. If that's the nature of what you're going through, I just want to assure you that Christ can be trusted to keep his word, that Christ can be trusted to keep his promises, just as Naomi was able to look at Boaz and say, you know what, if that guy said something, you can bank on it that he's going to do it today. He's going to do it today. That's the kind of confidence we want to have in Christ. If he says he'll do it, he'll do it. Don't spend the the majority of your earthly journey trusting yourself. Don't spend the majority of your earthly journey fighting his plan or rushing his timetable. Wait for Jesus to do exactly as he has promised. And one other admonition I'd give to us today, it's this. Remain joyfully expectant because he will settle the matter. You know how Naomi said that related to to Boaz? She's like, he's going to settle the matter. Christ is going to settle the matter, whatever the matter is in your context or mine, so we entrust our lives over to his care and lordship. He's going to settle the matter in just the right way and in just the right time. And you and I truly can find rest for our souls in Jesus Christ, who offers us that kind of peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for showing us the things that you show us in a portion of Scripture like this today. Lord, I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful for the fact that in the lives of people who lived many generations before us, we see things that are very similar to our earthly experiences. Lord, there are things that we endure on this earth that are very challenging. There are things that we endure on this earth that that feel like they crush our spirit people that break pledges and promises, people that let us down, circumstances that don't work out the way we thought they would, people that don't reciprocate love that that we attempt to show to them. But Lord, we know that, that our love, the love that we place in you, is not wasted love. We know that it's love that's a reflection of the love that you first demonstrated to us. 
And Lord, we know that you're compassionate toward us. We know that you're looking after us. We know that you have our lives planned out and you're orchestrating all sorts of things. You're speaking to our heart. You're putting people in our path that we're supposed to meet. You're directing us in in directions that you want us to go. And you're inviting us to listen to your counsel, no matter what we may experience. So Lord, we're grateful for the fact that as we think about these things today, and as we just wrestle with them, that if we come to a spot where we fully trust you to do exactly what you promised to do, that we could find peace, we could find rest for our souls, that we could look at the circumstances that we're dealing with and we could say that you've already overcome these things. So, Lord, I'm so grateful for the fact that you give us the opportunity to meditate on these things right now, and I pray that this would be something that throughout the course of our lives that we would think about and and revisit, and that we would wait on you to accomplish your will in your perfect timing and in your perfect ways. Again, Lord, thank you for the testimony of those that have come before us. Thank you for those who are willing to, to take action in regard to the faith that they expressed And thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to do that in the context of the generation that you've placed us in as well. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all of these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. For more resources to help you in your walk with Christ, please visit DesireJesus.com. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind Podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind Podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.